1: To the married Lagim fam out there, I bet you will agree that married life is not always a walk in the park. I may have not been married ever, but I have been in a long-term relationship before, and I know that relationships in general need a lot of work every day. It is a daily choice to love and care for your significant other, despite all their flaws and quirks. And they feel the same way about us, of course. When things not work out, the mature thing to do is sit down and talk about it. Communication is key, is what relationship gurus always tell us. But what happens when one person in that relationship refuses to use words and empathy? What happens when conflicts and dissatisfaction are met with more sinister ways instead of just discussing the problem in a mature way? What happens when things take a truly bad turn and lives are changed forever. This is the story of Emilita Reeves. Mabuhay, Lagim fam. Welcome to another episode of Lagim, a Filipino true crime podcast. If you're new here, welcome and remember that I release episodes every other Friday. I cover Filipino true crime cases that took place both in the motherland and in the diaspora. Today's case is a listener suggestion. So to that listener, thank you very much. Lagang salamat. If you want to suggest cases, go to Lagim's Instagram account and tap on the link in my bio. You will find there a link to an open Google Doc where you can make case suggestions. Now, without further ado, let us dive right into today's case. And remember that some details in this episode will be triggering to some people. So please take care of yourselves whilst listening. It was a mild and fine day in Arlington, Texas, on the 11th of October, 1994. Not too hot, not too cold. Temperatures peaked at 22 degrees Celsius that day, and the evening promised an easy 15 degrees. But somewhere in Arlington, a city just west of Dallas, a woman in her late 20s found herself in an unimaginable state of anxiety and fear. Not even the fine weather could soothe her at this point. Emilita Reeves was 26 years old and hailed from Cebu City. She was the mother of a three-year-old son. She was talking to friends on the 11th of October, 1994. She told them that she and her husband, Jack Reeves, had a huge fight just hours ago because Jack wanted to go camping at nearby Lake Whitney. Emilita did not want to go. She had plenty of reasons to refuse the idea of going camping right now. The timing seemed very off. She thought of all the things she knew about her husband, and she was worried about taking a trip now, of all days. Jack did not appreciate her refusal. The fight got physical. He pulled her long hair, but she broke free. When she was recounting this to her friends, they had a bad feeling about this trip as well. They asked her to not go. If she really had to, They asked her not to drink and to always keep her eyes on her husband. She agreed and then said that if she did not answer their calls or return their page in the coming days, they needed to call the police. Her statement hung awkwardly in the air between herself and her friends, who were very worried about her. When they said goodbye to each other, Emilita's friends probably wished her well but could not shake that feeling that something was not sitting right. The next day, Lynn Combs, one of Emilita's best friends in Arlington, paged her friend who was never without her big 90s cell phone and pager. But Emilita never returned Lynn's calls nor her pages. This all felt very wrong. Now, some sources seem to imply that Lynn was the one who raised the alarm about Emilita not returning any calls after the 11th of October. But in at least one documentary by Forensic Files, it would seem that another friend, who also happened to be rumored as Emilita's girlfriend, was the one who alerted the police by the 13th of October, when after over 24 hours, there had not been any word from Emilita. When talking to the police, this friend, named Mona Lisa Pate, admitted that she was with Emerita the night of the 11th of October until around 8 in the evening, and it was quite possible that she was the last person to see her before Emerita stopped returning calls and pager notifications. The police had heard enough and considered this case worth looking into, if only for a quick welfare check at the Reeves' home. So off they went, still bearing in mind that Mona Lisa could easily become a suspect if this case turned into a criminal one. So two police officers were sent to Emilita and Jack's home. They knocked at the front door and got no response initially, but they were certain that someone was in fact at home. There was a car in the driveway and the family dogs were barking excitedly inside they headed over to the garage and peeked into a window with a flashlight and noticed someone hiding behind a car, a Nissan Pathfinder. The jig was up, and so that person who was hiding behind the car finally opened up the front door, and it was Jack Reeves, Emanita's husband. When asked about his wife's whereabouts, it was clear that Jack wanted to appear nonchalant, telling the officers that his wife was probably fine and out with friends, but that he also did not exactly know where she was. To the police officers, however, Jack seemed rather nervous. When asked if they could have a look inside the home, Jack was unwilling to give the officers access. The officers eyed him with suspicion, of course. According to at least one report, Jack Reeves was very sweaty during this conversation and this may have indicated to the police that he was either doing something strenuous inside his home before they arrived or that he was more nervous than he already seemed. Either way, the officers walked away feeling like this may not look like a case to be too concerned about just yet but one that nevertheless needed a follow-up. Two more days would pass without a word from Emilita. And although the police may have initially thought that this case was just one of those things where the wife let off some steam and returned home to a grumpy husband after a couple of days, the police were very much of a different opinion at this point. Why? Well, someone reported a Nissan Pathfinder that had been parked and seemingly abandoned at a grocery parking lot for at least two days now. That Pathfinder belonged to Emilita. The police at Arlington were now paying full attention because this seemed very weird. The car was parked there when two days ago it was seen at the Reeves' home, and to add to all this, Emilita was still missing. Following the Pathfinder's discovery, a detective who normally worked for the homicide unit took interest in the case and decided to drop by the Reeves' home to talk to Jack and ask him a bit more about his wife. Before she was Emelita Reeves, she was Emelita Villia from Cebu City. As in most victim stories that get overshadowed by all the other details in criminal cases, we do not know a whole lot about the young Filipina. We know that she was one of at least 11 children and that her family lived in a rundown hut with only one mattress in it. Nevertheless, Emilita was said to have been a ray of sunshine. She was beautiful with a magnetic smile and she was vibrating with life. She was said to have been a regular pageant winner, and with that, of course, came a lot of admirers. But Emilita also felt a great sense of responsibility towards her family, something that a lot of Filipino children can identify with, given our upbringing. Now, I'm not sure whose idea it was, but as soon as Emilita turned 18, she placed an ad in a magazine known to advertise women's profiles for men abroad something that may seem so foreign to us now who are so deeply embedded in the digital age. The magazine was called Cherry Blossoms, and as much as I hate explaining it this way, this magazine served as a, well, menu for Western men who could look up Asian women willing to become so-called male-order brides. Emilita's profile was, in a manner of speaking, a hit, She had at least two or three fervent suitors, one of whom was Jack Reeves, who then flew to the Philippines in 1986 to further pursue the young Cebuana. Jack was 46 years old at this point, and Emilita was, as I said, 18. Jack was an army veteran with thinning hair. It was said that when Emilita saw him, she cried, not expecting him to be that old but Jack was disturbingly laser-focused to get the girl. He wanted to one-up his competition and offered Emilita's father money. He promised the family to send them a regular monthly allowance as well. Soon enough, Emilita's father found himself convincing his 18-year-old daughter to choose Jack, to get married to him, to move to the States with him. She probably felt very conflicted, but There was that sense of responsibility again, and she eventually said yes. Jack was, in her mind and in her family's mind, their ticket out of poverty. Now, before she knew it, Emilita was on her way to Arlington, Texas, and also on her way to becoming Mrs. Reeves. Once in Arlington, Emilita learned that Jack owned his own business, his own home, a fishing boat, a Harley Davidson motorcycle, and a camper. Jack then decided to buy his new young wife a car, the Nissan Pathfinder. He also made sure she had a cell phone and a pager, as well as a seemingly endless budget for clothing. Sure, this seemed like a comfortable life, Emilita may have thought initially, but friends would later state that Emilita quickly felt lonely, homesick, and culture shocked. Some later reports also indicated that Emilita may have also felt very isolated. After all, Jack was not the outgoing and social type. He mostly kept to himself and did not have lots of friends to begin with. Emilita was the polar opposite and loved having friends. It was not a surprise that as the years went on, Emilita found her own group of Filipino friends in Arlington. Now, married life was not the easiest on Emilita. Her relationship with Jack was said to have been tense at best. Many reports indicated that whilst it was clear that Emilita was not in love with Jack to begin with, and he was aware of that, Emilita may have never really learned to love her own husband but learned to accept that hers was a marriage of convenience. Having said that though, Emilita still became pregnant eventually and gave birth to a baby boy in the early 90s. This was a sore point for Jack somehow. Whether true or not, Jack was somehow under the impression that the baby boy was not his because he believed that Emilita had affairs with men and that one of them may have been the boy's father. Jack was upset at this thought and even wanted Emelita to abort the pregnancy earlier on. When she refused to do so, Jack decided that he would send both Emelita and the baby boy back to the Philippines after the birth, and so he did. Emelita and her son were in the Philippines for at least two years. And at some point in those two years, she sent Jack a picture of the boy, who was then a bit older, of course. For whatever reason, Jack concluded that the boy actually looked very much like him and that he, together with Emelita, should come back to the United States immediately. And so Emelita and her son were told to travel back to Arlington But nothing would ever be the same once she stepped back into her old life in Texas. Emilita was upset. In the two years she was gone from Arlington, Jack managed to shack it up with another woman, a Ukrainian who then also moved into Emilita and Jack's marital home. Emilita felt betrayed. Now, I mentioned how Jack in the past believed that his wife was being unfaithful. Well, it would seem that that was a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if Emelita had not dared to cheat on Jack before, she certainly did it now. Friends of Emelita confirmed that after learning about Jack's mistress, Emelita started acting out by partying a lot, going to clubs, and having a boyfriend or two. Eventually, Jack found out. He even suspected that Emilita had a girlfriend, something that I've already mentioned. But Emilita did not seem to care that much that her husband knew. Sure, she did not flaunt the fact that she was having an extra marital affair or two and still made sure she showered at friends' places before going back from smoke-filled clubs, but she made a point to truly just let out her frustration through partying. When one looks closer, though, it was not just really about the Ukrainian mistress or any kind of other frustration. It was so much more than that. Emilita's friends would later state that above all, Emilita felt trapped in her marriage ever since she came back from the Philippines. She also had to deal with not only physical abuse, but also sexual humiliation. She confessed to friends that Jack forced her several times to perform perverse and humiliating sexual acts while he photographed her. Now, we can debate all day long whether Emilita's partying and her affairs were a response to the abuse she was experiencing, but in the end, only an expert can make that diagnosis. This was who Emilita had become in the end— Of course, when Jack Reeves was being interviewed by the detective from the Arlington police who was wondering where Emilita was, Jack left out all the ugly details of abuse and his own extramarital affair. Needless to say, though, this case had got the detective's full attention. Now, bear in mind that when this detective was able to finally talk to Jack Reeves, it had been around five days after Emilita was reported missing. As it turned out, on the day the Pathfinder was found at the grocery store's parking lot, Jack Reeves was at Lake Whitney with his three-year-old son. Rather odd timing for a camping trip, don't you think? Now, when he was finally interviewed by that detective, he again did not express any concern about Emilita's disappearance because she allegedly had done this kind of thing before. A few more days would pass and Emilita's friends had started taking the reins on finding their friend. In an age before social media, the Filipino community in Arlington seemed to have managed to still drum up lots of attention and urged the public to help find their friend. Meanwhile, Jack seemed to have been moved to do something similar for whatever motivation. He went and distributed flyers and offered a $25,000 reward for his wife's return, which all looked good on the surface. He even gave the police some of Emilita's clothing to aid in a sniff dog search, but this all amounted to nothing. On the surface, Jack may have appeared to some people as a very concerned husband, but what those people may not have known was that at around the same time, he was also calling Emilita's cousin and asking him to find him a new girlfriend, preferably someone from Emilita's family. This stunned the cousin. Furthermore, Jack would also soon file for divorce, arguing that Emilita had abandoned him and their three year old son.
0: Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Weeks
1: and months passed with no news or trace of Emerita anywhere. The police had no leads, but they continued to have a bad feeling about Jack. You see, when the police were processing Emilita's pathfinder when she first disappeared, they were able to learn a few things that led them to believe that it was more likely than not that Emilita met with foul play. Firstly, the seat was adjusted in a way that indicated that someone tall was driving the car the last time it was used. Emilita was a very short woman so it could not have been her. The police immediately thought of Jack. He was a tall man. Secondly, the police had come to learn that Emilita was the type of driver who would always lock her steering wheel. When her Nissan was found at the grocery store parking lot, her steering wheel was not locked. Lastly, Emilita was consistent in always setting her car's alarm before leaving it. This time it was not set. When they further investigated the case, they then learned that none of Emilita's clothing were missing or taken from her home. This did not strike them as the behavior of someone who planned a short but temporary getaway. The biggest red flag for the police was ultimately what they learned from Emilita's friends. On top of all the things I've already mentioned, the police also learned that Jack had once forced Emilita to have sex with one of his older sons from an earlier marriage. Emilita refused to do this. It was not surprising to the police, therefore, when they eventually learned that Emilita was very much on the verge of leaving her husband, who was also aware of these plans. As a response to this, Jack offered Emilita money to stay with him. It is not clear whether she agreed to take this money or not. All this information was helpful, but the information that caught the police's attention the most was the fact that Emilita expressed fear over being killed by Jack. This was alarming. Apparently, Emilita once told her friends that she feared that Jack would kill her, just like he killed his previous wives. This was the reason why Emilita was hesitant to go camping with Jack at Lake Whitney, and I promise you, you will understand why a little later. Now you have to understand that this information opened a can of worms that the police were only too happy to keep open. The thing is, it was when the police finally looked into these previous marriages that they realized they could not let go of Jack as a potential suspect in Emelita's disappearance. So the police conducted parallel investigations that would take them on an incredibly dark ride into Jack Reeves' past In order to understand what they learned, let me take you through the timeline of Jack's relationships with a few side notes here and there to better understand him as a person. With that being said, let's start with the year 1958. Jack Reeves got married for the first time in 1958 when he was only 18 years old. His wife was merely 15. It would seem that none of the couple's parents really liked this arrangement that much and there was a concerted effort to get this marriage annulled right away. And so it was in 1960. A year later, Jack met his second wife named Sharon Vaughn. Six years after their wedding, he was stationed in Italy and Sharon was with him. Remember that he was in the army for most of his life before he opened his own business in Texas much later on. Now, whilst in Italy in 1967, he ended up shooting an Italian who was allegedly peeking through the married couple's room in Verona. He was tried and convicted of manslaughter. He then served a total of four months in prison, which was not his whole sentence. A petition started by people from his hometown plus a presidential intervention eventually persuaded Italian authorities to drop the charges and allow him to go back home. So, life pretty much went back to normal for Jack and his wife, Sharon, who, while still in Italy, became parents to two sons, Ricky and Randall. But this relationship started to go sour after 18 years. By 1977, Sharon found herself falling in love with another man, and she was serious about him. A year later, in 1978, Sharon, having decided that her marriage was now over, filed for a divorce. But there was a problem. Well, it was more of a problem for Jack because he was actually stationed in South Korea at that time. But despite the distance, the divorce papers were still delivered all the way to South Korea, where a stunned and perplexed Jack Reeves decided not to sign them. He instead decided to fly back home in an effort to save his marriage with Sharon. A week later, Sharon was found dead in her bedroom. And who found her? Jack Reeves. Jack called the police, who then arrived at the scene to see a naked Sharon with a gaping wound in her chest and a shotgun between her legs. The police asked Jack what happened, and he said that he was outside when he heard a gunshot. He immediately ran inside to see Sharon bleeding on her bed. One of the two police officers who was at the scene then checked Sharon's pulse as per standard procedure. To his horror, Sharon, who everyone assumed had now died from this gunshot wound, suddenly grabbed the police officer's wrist. She took her last breath and then died, still holding the officer, who then had to pry her fingers from around his own wrist. He would later tell an LA Times reporter that he always wondered if Sharon grabbed his wrist to tell him something before she died, or if it was just a weird muscle reflex. Questions that haunt the officer to this very day. Now, please remember that this was 1978. The police accepted Jack's story after they investigated the case as much as they could and after they concluded that Sharon, in fact, took her own life. When we look at the case now, it seems odd for the police to have just accepted this, especially because of a few things that should have been seen as red flags even back then. Firstly, there was that weird interaction between Jack and the police when the latter was processing the scene of Sharon's death. Instead of appearing distraught and alarmed by his wife's untimely death, Jack was noted to have bragged about his sexual conquests whilst being stationed in South Korea. He was literally talking to police officers about this. Next up, the police also learned that Sharon died with a last will and testament in place that was conveniently signed the night before Sharon supposedly took her own life. Then there was the matter of the suicide note that very much said something different from Sharon's actions when she was still alive. Let us remind ourselves that she fell in love with another man the year prior and decided to end her marriage with Jack. Meanwhile, the suicide note spoke of how she was so in love with both men and how she could not decide and therefore wanted to end her life instead. Bizarrely enough, there was also an illustration of a sex toy on the note. You would think that this would ring alarm bells with the police. Sure, they did not have DNA technology back then, but the police never actually submitted the note for handwriting analysis, nor did they conduct an autopsy on Sharon's body, or maybe viewed the note with a bit more scrutiny. And soon enough, the case was closed. Sharon was mourned, buried, and her case was soon forgotten. Jack definitely forgot about her very quickly because, you see, two years later, he was back in South Korea, and then he married a South Korean woman named Myung Hee Chong. She would soon join him in Texas. Six years later, in 1986, she would be dead. It all happened at Lake Whitney, a place we've already heard about before. According to Jack, he and Myung went to camp at the lake for a few days, One day, Myung was out in the water floating on an air mattress and something must have happened because the next time he saw her, she was lifeless and floating in the water. He alerted the park rangers and they had to then retrieve Myung's body from the lake. One park ranger who ended up investigating the drowning noticed that Jack seemed lacking in emotion whilst talking about his third wife, But somehow, this very demeanor did not raise any suspicions. The local police ruled Myung's death an accident by simply observing her body. No autopsy was conducted. When Myung's family was notified, I believe that only her sister was able to come to the U.S. to be there for the funeral and burial. This sister observed her beloved Myung in an open casket and noticed something odd. Myung had bruising on her face, something that the sister thought did not normally happen when someone had drowned. The sister's stomach turned. She was reminded of letters she received from Myong herself merely days before she died. Myung talked about physical and sexual abuse in her marriage with Jack. She said that Jack beat her up badly at times in order to force her to engage in humiliating sexual acts with him. And then there was this thing about Myong not actually liking open waters. She was scared of them and therefore never actually learned to swim. She would never just willingly float on an air mattress for fun, her sister thought. Myong's sister was furious. She confronted Jack about the bruising and demanded that her sister's body be submitted for an autopsy. This move backfired. Before she knew it, Jack had Myong's body cremated. There was no way to investigate anything now, and the police did not pursue the matter any further, despite Myong's sister's pleading. And this was the timeline that the detective in Emilita's case was finally able to learn about and put together. And it did not take an expert to see that there was a deeply disturbing pattern emerging from at least three of the four marriages. As soon as someone wanted out of the relationship, it would seem something awful happened. Sure, we do not know for sure if Myung wanted out of the relationship at that point, but judging from the letters to her sister, she may have at least thought of getting out of the abusive relationship with Jack. It was definitely plausible. And then there was Emilita. Her case remained open and almost cold. In the detective's parallel investigation into Emilita and the other suspicious deaths, the police focused on Sharon for obvious reasons first. The police were convinced that her death was no suicide at all. So they decided to arrest Jack for Sharon's murder and soon enough, he found himself in a courtroom at his own murder trial in late 1995. It was argued by Jack and his defense team that it was not impossible for Sharon to shoot herself in the chest. Now, to give you a mental image of how the defense argued Sharon had killed herself, picture a woman sat down at the edge of her bed holding a shotgun with the nozzle pointed directly at the middle of her chest, but the handle or grip of the gun pointing the opposite way. And now slightly out of reach because, as we all know, shotguns are a bit longer than the usual handguns. Their argument was that Sharon used her toes to cock the trigger and kill herself. They pointed to a cut near her toes as evidence that she used them to shoot the gun. The prosecution, armed with the police's investigation, argued, however, that the evidence they finally uncovered told a very different story. Now, I will not go into the minute details of that trial in here, but suffice it to say that, first and foremost, loved ones of Sharon believed that she was never suicidal. Furthermore, forensic examination of her body after it was exhumed for the purpose of this investigation showed that Sharon could never have shot herself. The evidence against Jack in the end was way too strong and the jury agreed. He was found guilty of murdering Sharon Vaughn and he was given a 35-year prison sentence in January 1996. Now, what I have left out here so far was that before Jack's conviction, sentencing, and even his trial in late 1995 for Sharon's murder, a grim discovery was made near Lake Whitney by a hunter who was randomly making his rounds in that area. The hunter stumbled upon a human body. Well, in this case, it was just a skeleton. It was partially buried in a shallow grave, and to the expert eyes of the hunter, it was clear that this body had been ravaged by animals, judging by the marks on the bones. The police and forensic team were then called in and thus started a process of identification in a time when DNA testing was still very much in its infancy and not even used in criminal investigations. When examining the skeleton, the forensic team concluded that it belonged to a petite young woman with long black hair. It was Emilita. Her dental records were used to make a final identification, and there was no doubt that Emilita Reeves had finally been found. Because of the state of how Emilita was found, the police could not really determine how or where she died. There were no signs of bullet wounds or stabbing. They did confirm that she had been buried in the woods for about a year. Those were the same woods where Jack went camping after Emilita first disappeared. Two very interesting observations were also made in Emilita's autopsy and examination of the grave she was found in. The first observation was that her hyoid bone was gone. The encyclopedic definition of the hyoid bone is that it is a U-shaped bone situated at the root of the tongue in front of the neck and between the lower jaw and the largest cartilage of the larynx or the voice box. So essentially the base part of your throat. The chief medical examiner in Emilita's case theorized that it was possible that the missing hyoid bone pointed at a death by strangulation. That would have damaged the bone severely and it would have been easy for a small damaged bone like that to be dragged by wild animals or swept by the elements. The second observation was that after taking soil samples from the area where Emilita was buried, the forensic team tested it and learned that the soil contained a high concentration of tiny single-celled organisms called diatones. To us mere laypeople, this probably does not mean anything, but to those in the know will know that diatones are only found in water. It was therefore the theory back in 1995 that Emelita would have come in contact with the water at Lake Whitney somehow. Perhaps she drowned there, and that was how the diatones landed in her lungs. When her body then decomposed, those organisms were then deposited in the grave where she was buried. Now, keep these two things in mind because we're going to circle back to them in just a minute. Now, the police, having been given these observations by the forensic team, of course, ramped up their investigation. And at some point, their attention landed on Emilita's son. He was still very young and the police knew that whatever information they would get from him would be highly susceptible to scrutiny in court. But they needed to know what he knew. In the course of trying to get information out of this child, they took him to Lake Whitney. The boy then said that they should all be careful of the quote-unquote big hole before pointing in the direction where Emelita was buried and then found. He would also later say straight out that his dad hurt his mom in the bathtub. Taking these details and the details I mentioned about the diatones and the hyoid bone, I think the police had a good idea of what their case against Jack Reeves would be. I could not find any references as to what their theory of the case was exactly, but I tried to put one together with the things that we have learned so far in this episode. My best guess is that after Emilita arrived home later that evening on the 11th of October 1994 another fight ensued most likely in the bathroom that somehow involved the bathtub. I don't think that this reference to the bathtub by Emilita's son means that water was involved but something happened in the bathroom which the son saw. I then think that Emilita was so incapacitated at this point that she may have just been somewhere in the house. When the police came over and did a welfare check, Jack refused entry, perhaps to conceal Emilita. Two days after Emilita was first reported missing, Jack and the three-year-old son then went to Lake Whitney on a camping trip. I think that Emelita was with them, barely conscious. Maybe Jack could not bear to kill her in the house, so he took her to the lake and did it there. I think that he took her body to the lake, strangled her, and she may have fought, swallowed some water before ultimately dying. I also think that Jack had thought of leaving her there in the lake, but he knew that this would look very odd given his history with Myung. This was when he took her body out of the lake, placed it somewhere, and started digging for that shallow grave where he would ultimately and unceremoniously bury her. It was suspected by the police back then that the couple's young son may have seen all of this happen, seeing as he was able to pinpoint where the shallow grave was. Of course, this is just my theory, but whatever theory the police and the prosecution eventually had, they finally did roll with it and formally charged Jack Reeves of Emilita's murder. There was an overlap in Sharon and Emilita's cases, but Emilita's loved ones would also get their day in court in the summer of 1996, when Jack's trial for Emilita's murder took place. By August 1996, he was found guilty, and this time he was given an additional 99-year prison sentence. He would appeal both of his convictions, but the appeals were rejected. Now, these sentences are being served concurrently, not consecutively. Serving sentences concurrently really makes little sense to me because it feels very invalidating. You are physically just sitting one sentence despite there being two sentences on paper. For this reason, Jack Reeves, unfortunately for us, will be eligible for parole in 2026. But here is to hoping that he will never be paroled for the lives he took and the lives he destroyed along the way. To close this episode, I do want to remember Emelita and her life and pay my respects. Hers was not a unique story, but she was unique and she was loved by many. As for her son, whose name was never publicly revealed, I hope he is somewhere out there thriving and honoring the memory of his mother. I hope that despite this painful part of his life, he's able to remember his mom in the fondest of ways. The only way Emilita probably wants to be remembered by her own beloved son. Again, Fam, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you want to know more about the case, I have included a link to a YouTube video in the sources list on my blog. That is the link to the Forensic File video I mentioned in the episode. I also watched an episode of Exhumed by the Oxygen Network, but I found that there were a lot of inaccuracies and inconsistencies in their reporting, and it rarely focused on Emilita, despite hooking the audience in with a flashy title that includes something about mail-order brides. If you still want to watch it, though, make sure to look for Season 1, Episode 7 of the show called Exhumed. Again, thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because it helps with making my podcast more visible to those who do not know about it yet. Links are in the show notes. Also, make sure to follow me on all my socials. Check the show notes for those links as well. And maybe I'll catch you somewhere on Twitter or Instagram. Until next episode, Lagim fam, thank you so much. Maraming salamat at mabuhay.
0: Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase Over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. hi And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it.